Welcome to Scrubcast, where we explore clinical, translational, and health services research from Stanford University's Department of Surgery through conversations with the authors. I'm Rachel Baker. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Kristen Stoudemire. Dr. Stoudemire is an associate professor in our trauma and critical care section and associate surgical ICU medical director. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. You published an article in JAMA Surgery a few months back on the creation of a clinical pathway for geriatric patients. How did you get interested in this subject? Yeah, I didn't start off necessarily aiming for this population when I began doing research in trauma, but over the course of my time since I've been at Stanford, we were seeing increasing numbers of older adults being admitted with injuries. And um, they're being admitted with very minor injuries um, after low energy mechanisms, and they were having very poor outcomes. So for example, we would have a person admitted for rib fractures, which we generally would consider a minor injury, but the patient would wind up in the ICU after a few days with a pneumonia, and we even had people dying from that. Uh, and it became alarming, um, the, one, the poor outcomes, and two, the large number of patients we were seeing, and it was clear there was a need. Colleagues around the country and I were discussing it, and everybody was reporting the same things that were happening. So this was a population historically we, we hadn't focused on, but they were the ones that we needed to help. So that's why I, I got involved with the geriatric uh, trauma population. Awesome. Yeah, I was reading on the census website that the number of older Americans increased more than 30% in the last decade compared to less than 10% among younger Americans. So this seems really well-timed. What does your clinical pathway entail? So one of the things we realized um, is that for the older adult population, the combination of their frailty, all the medications that they're on, their comorbidities, um, and their dependency on many different services across the hospital mandated a multidisciplinary, multi-departmental, all-hands-on-deck approach. So we wound up pulling together everybody who touched injured geriatric patients in the hospital, and we filled the Linda Meyer boardroom in 300P um, <laughs> with a, a large number of different representatives in order to to identify the areas that needed to be addressed. So uh, for example, physical therapy, occupational therapy, of course, our geriatric service, uh, the emergency department, pharmacy, it, it was a very long list. And, and from that group, uh, we developed uh, clinical pathways that we aligned with established geriatric best practice. Hmm. Um, and then we incorporated that in multiple mechanisms, for example, through order sets, guidelines, automatic consultations. And then we also had escalation pathways when patients weren't doing well. We also put into place workflows. So for example, the geriatric service would um, will check out with the teams every day to provide updates. Um, okay. And we created dashboards uh, for metrics so uh, that we review at a regular basis. So by, by doing this, um, we were able to really get our hands around all the challenges older adults face, have mechanisms in place to address them, and then to coordinate care across all of the different specialties. Wow, that seems like a lot is going on. How, how do you get inspiration to create something on such a massive scale? Well, we started small. Um, 
you know, we, we first, and this was, you know, with the help of a lot of people, Dr. Lisa Knowlton, one of my partners was very, very involved and very helpful with this. And then of course, our geriatric service and um, our pain service. Um, we start with rib fractures. That was kind of the sentinel injury that really got me paying attention. Um, and we developed an opioids bearing pain protocol that was appropriate for older adults. We've now, we now use that on, on just about everybody who has rib fractures because it was so successful. And then, uh, you know, through our fantastic nursing leadership and geriatric leadership, we trialed an, an ACE unit, an acute care elder unit on mm-hmm. um, C2, our trauma floor in the older hospital. And that was very successful in reducing common geriatric hospital complications. So we started bit by bit, but what we realized was we were still running into walls. So for example, we would have a patient who had multiple consults, different services, who would be prescribing recommendations and orders that were either not age appropriate, or there was an issue with the dosages that were being used. And we realized we really had to pull everybody together and make sure everybody's on the same page um, Mm. and had the same understanding. So that's where we knew we had to take it another step up. And I would say another inspiration was early on when I was exploring solutions for taking care of this population, I visited uh, San Francisco General Hospital, which has an ACE unit. And it's the first ACE unit in the country. And it it was inspiring to see what they were able to do and how they set everything up. So that was another, another inspiration for me. There are obviously a lot of different groups involved in this process. How did you get buy-in? Well, I think everybody, everybody recognized the problem and they all recognize it from their different points of view. So pharmacy obviously recognized it. the occupational therapists were um, wondering why we didn't consult them more for these patients because of how, how much their services were needed. So everyone, when you pulled everyone together, there was a lot of enthusiasm because it was a problem that everyone faced and nobody knew how to address it on their own. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say it was a relief for a lot of the different specialties to come together to solve this. There wasn't friction at all. It, it seemed very natural. It seemed very organic. Wow, that's great. True team approach. Your study showed that the implementation of the pathway was associated with improved rates of delirium. What what is delirium? Uh, Delirium is basically a cognitive dysfunction that's brought about by illness, and it's characterized by fluctuating levels of consciousness and confusion, lack of attention, Um, very common in our older adult population. There's even a term that was created to describe um, when older adults get delirium at night, and it's called sundowning. Um, Delirium has been associated with worse outcomes, uh, whether it's because delirium is a marker of dysfunction within the body or whether or not delirium contributes to poor outcomes. It's it's not really absolutely clear, but it's Mm -hmm. recognized to be not a great thing to have. And not just that, it it impacts families as well. It's it's very disconcerting when your loved one is not able to recognize you or is having hallucinations. And that just increases the stress load on the entire family unit. So there's been a, an intense effort across all populations, for example, in the critical care populations in our ICUs to decrease delirium. And we have been very focused on it. ACE units have been very focused on it. And it turns out it, it was felt that there was nothing you could do, um, mm-hmm. but there's a lot you can do. And we've 
we've seen impressive results and we, we, we see delirium some, but we used to see delirium a lot. Um, it was kind of the norm. And now it's uh, more of an exception for us to see it, which is really great. And if we see it, it's, it's mild um, and it resolves. So we try to turn all guns to reduce delirium, all the different known practices um, that can help prevent it. Once you have it, it's a little bit more difficult to mm. make it go away again. But yeah, that was our strongest finding. We also showed, but we didn't have the statistical power yet to show, but we also saw that we, we had a decrease in mortality. Um, wow. We couldn't put this in our paper because uh, there's a general rule that you don't publish a table with a cell size smaller than 10 because mm. that might be identifiable. And our mortality dropped so low that our cell sizes were too small and to report. And so in consultation with our aspire statisticians asking, well, what kind of numbers do we need? We'd actually need to see some people start to to die in our post-implantation cohort. And we haven't really seen that yet. So we don't have, we're not able to report on that or, you know, run the appropriate statistics on it, which is unfortunate because I thought that, that was one of the most stark findings that we had. So that didn't get, didn't make it into the paper, but certainly is something that we've observed. A great problem to have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so what are your next steps? Where do you go from here? Yeah. So there are, there are a couple of next steps. One is, as I just mentioned, we have to have larger numbers uh, mm -hmm. on all of this to really be able to kind of run some more detailed subgroup analyses and find out where our challenges exist. We do know where some exist. So for example, what we notice is when we do get delirium, we're seeing it in the patients who have a harder time communicating, for example, non-English speakers. Hmm. So we're going to have to do some modifications to and additions to our practices to reach mm -hmm. some of the populations who are having challenges. And then also to keep just running the analyses to make sure we're, we're staying on target. What I get really excited about is kind of scoping back to a system level. Currently, injured, severely injured younger trauma patients get sent to trauma centers. Geriatric patients get sent everywhere. So for example, if a paramedic picks up an elderly woman on the ground and she's complaining of pain, maybe she had a stroke, maybe she didn't, it's not really clear what's happening. Uh, there's no guideline that says that that person needs to come to a trauma center. So as it turns out, very, the majority of patients wind up at community hospitals. Mm -hmm. It's not practical given the number of trauma patients that we're seeing who are older to bring all those patients to a trauma center to get this type of care. So from a systems perspective, that's not a solution. So what we're looking at is how can we actually bring this as a level one trauma center, as the local hub for trauma knowledge in the area, how do we create the knowledge, how do we create the expertise, how do we create the processes in other hospitals within our catchment area to create a network of hospitals that can care for geriatric patients who are injured. I think if we can do that in our local area, that gives us an opportunity to systematize it in some way. And it so happens that I'm the vice chair of trauma systems for the Committee on Trauma, which um, is uh, one of the committees at the American College of Surgeons and, and helps guide trauma system development, other things such as ATLS and uh, courses, um, does, you know, trauma system verification. So in that position, there's, there's potentially an opportunity if we're able to find solutions and, and creating a dissemination mechanism. 
Fantastic. I, I can't wait to see what you accomplish and where you go from here. That's very exciting. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add? Any irons in the fire you wanted to tell us about? Oh, so many irons in the fire. <laughs> uh, uh, more, probably, probably more, more than I can handle. Um, but maybe, maybe I'll not go. Maybe I'll not get into all of those right now because it's, it's, uh, they're, they're all deep dives. Um, <laughs> Understood. In addition to your work at Stanford, you are also a member of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. I didn't realize you were so involved in policy. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm kind of, uh, right now, I'm, most of my efforts, I think, are, most of my time is spent doing national efforts. Uh Um, You know, also as a member of the Committee on Trauma uh, and uh, the vice chair of the Trauma Systems Committee, I also do trauma system reviews. So we have two coming up when that's where we go to a region um, and or, you know, a hot, you know, particular trauma hospital, maybe that covers an area or a county, you know, some lead agency uh, for trauma system. And we do a deep dive into their system and provide them a detailed report. So we have two coming up uh, where we're going to be doing that. I had mentioned earlier about this idea that, you know, trauma systems are microcosms of the U.S. healthcare system. They, you know, have many of the same challenges. So, uh, you know, in that position, I'm, I'm able to look at the U.S. healthcare system through different lenses, one through, um, you know, microcosm, but then also the larger scale. So there are trends that I've observed in trauma and elsewhere that I'm now seeing emerging in healthcare. And those, I think, need to get out there. So that's kind of uh, what I've been looking at. Nice. Yeah. I'm interested to know, do you ever miss the one-on-one sort of care because you're taken away to do the national level or do you get the same emotional response, you know, from doing, you know, this big systems work where maybe you're not, you know, seeing the individuals, but you are, you're helping so many patients at the same time. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's an excellent question. I, I get my inspiration from the clinical care. When I'm clinical, I, I shut all this other stuff off because I can't can't be in those two places. They're very different. How you know how the brain works, which are your activities are very different. So I, I usually separate them. So when I'm clinical. I just try to be 100% clinical, and I would say that it is enjoyable. It's peaceful in a way, even even if it's busy and crazy, because you're you're doing good work and you're helping people, and it's rewarding. You have those one-on-one interactions with people, and you see their gratitude. And feels good and it inspires you. When I do the, the other work, I'm using skills that I, I think probably are unique, not unique to me, but I think uh, skill sets that aren't necessarily usual. So I, I feel like I'm providing a service in a different way mm-hmm. um, because I'm able to, I can see small level detail down in the mitochondria and I can see the 30,000 foot overview. I can see that all at the same time and I can range across economics clinical models, business operations. I can see all those things too. So when I'm pulling all those different skill sets together and applying them, it's very satisfying. And uh, you don't get the immediate gratitude because, for example, policy work. (laughs) You get no gratitude on that. You'll just get beat up. (laughs) But but you're, you're, you're using that and seeing patterns other people don't see and saying, oh, wait, this is something that we could do and have people go, aha, yeah, that actually would be great. Like that, that is really rewarding. But it's a very different exercise, very different feeling. Mm, so, you know, it's kind of hard to be easier if I was in completely one or completely the other. 
Um, but at the same time, I think I would lose out. I'd lose the inspiration if I wasn't doing clinical work, lose that sense of reward that so doctors get to feel that, nurses get to feel you know, There aren't a whole lot of people who get to have that type of relationship mm-hmm. um, and those and have those types of you know activities. And it's, so it's a privilege. So yeah, it'd be easy to be one versus the other, but really I kind of feel both are necessary, at least right now at the stage where I'm at. That's awesome. I love that. And I think a lot of people are going to find inspiration in what you had to say. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Thank you for doing this, Rachel. And thank you for everything you're doing, by the way. It really it was wonderful that you joined and you're doing a lot of great stuff for the department. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. You're very sweet. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like Scrubcast, we hope you'll tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.